We read in the book of Genesis of Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph was favored by his father. And Joseph's brothers were jealous and envious. And they sold their brother Joseph to slave traders who took Joseph to Egypt, where Joseph was sold to Potiphar. Potiphar was an officer who served Pharaoh. And Potiphar purchased Joseph to serve in Potiphar's household. Now, Potiphar observed that everything that Joseph did succeeded. He observed that the Lord was with Joseph, that whatever Joseph put his hands to prospered. And so over time, Potiphar entrusted uh, to Joseph the oversight of Potiphar's whole household. Uh, Joseph was made the steward of the household. Now Potiphar had a wife. And that wife came to Joseph, noticing that Joseph was handsome in appearance. And Potiphar's wife said to Joseph, lie with me. Joseph immediately refused. But day after day, Potiphar's wife continued to come to Joseph and asked her to, to lie beside her. Uh, to, to, to be with her, and, and Joseph always refused. We're told in Genesis 39, verse 8, that the first time that Potiphar's wife came to Joseph like this, uh, Joseph responded, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. Uh, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? One day, Potiphar's wife came to Joseph when no others were in the house, and she took hold of his outer garment and said, forcefully, lie with me. And Joseph fled. <laughs> he left that outer garment in her hand, and he fled, not just away from her, not just outside that room, but he fled out of the house. And that is what our text calls us as Christians to do. Not just if someone makes a proposition like that to us, but in every respect, we are called upon to flee sexual immorality. To flee it. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, uh, which gives us this uh, in instruction. And I'm going to read it to us now. Please stand in honor of the word of God. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's holy word. Please be seated.
we are studying verse by verse uh, through uh, this epistle the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to the fairly young church in Corinth. And in the passage that we come to this morning, uh, there are two imperatives. The first imperative is in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And the second imperative is at the end of verse 20, glorify God in your body. What you are commanded to do with your body here is the opposite of what you are to flee from. We are to glorify God in our body, and that would be the opposite of committing sexual immorality. We're to flee from sexual immorality, and instead of going down that path, we are to glorify God in our body. Those are the two imperatives in our passage, the two commands in our passage. And everything else in the passage is stated in support of these commands. Now, what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is any sexual relations engaged in willingly that are unlawful in God's sight. God created sex for marriage. In marriage, sex is good and a blessing from God to be enjoyed together as husband and wife. Having sexual relations prior to marriage or outside of marriage is wrong. And if done willingly, is the sin of sexual immorality. I I included that word willingly because someone who is raped or molested is not guilty of sexual immorality. I want you to see that. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. I want you to see that someone who is raped or molested is not guilty of the sin that we are going to be talking about this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 22 at verse 25 In verse 25 it says, But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. God's law is clear uh, that in the case of rape, the one who is raped is not guilty. The same would go with molestation. So coming back to our text, what our text says about sexual immorality does not apply to being raped or being molested. To be raped or to be molested is not to do evil. Rather, it is to have evil done against you. Now, what does our passage address? Uh, Does our text only address sex with a prostitute? The word prostitute is used twice in our text, in verses 15 and 16. The answer is no. Our text does not only address sex with a prostitute. Sex with a prostitute is the chief example that Paul has in mind as he's speaking about sexual immorality because of how common it was in Corinth and in the wider Greco-Roman world to have sex with a prostitute. But Paul speaks in general terms in this passage against all forms of sexual immorality. The Bible's prohibition of sexual immorality prohibits something that our culture increasingly loves. Something that our culture increasingly considers to be a personal right. Sigmund Freud and his followers have convinced society that it is impossible to be happy and satisfied if you are not having sex. Our culture considers sexual activity to be a personal right. To understand the the place that abortion has in our culture, you have to understand the place that sex has in our culture. The main reason large sections of our society fight for the protection of abortion 
is that they love sexual freedom. To such a society, the Bible's prohibition of sex outside marriage is offensive and even seen as hateful. What we will see in our text is very counter-cultural. To flee sexual immorality and to glorify God with your body requires denying yourself. It requires exercising self-control. It requires saying no to urges within you. The commands in this text effectively prohibit living together with a boyfriend or, a, or with a girlfriend or with a fiancé. You are not fleeing sexual immorality if you are living together in such a relationship. And you are giving the impression to the world that you are sleeping together consequently damaging your witness and Christ's reputation. As those who have been washed by the blood of Christ, who have been sanctified, who have been justified by the grace of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, we are called to live differently than the world. As becomes very evident in our text. Our text gives us three reasons to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in your body. And if we're going to fight against sexual temptation, we need to internalize these reasons that the text gives us uh, to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in your body. We are transformed, Romans 12 says, by the renewing of our mind. And so we need to seek to understand these reasons that are given. Uh, we need to internalize them. We need to, to keep them in our hearts, keep them in mind. This needs to form part of our Christian mindset that we would be transformed in the way that we live and that we would be equipped to resist temptation when it arises. The first reason in our text to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in our body is that your body is not for sexual immorality, but is for the Lord. Your body is not for sexual immorality, but is for the Lord Jesus. Now, the first verse and a half in our text is somewhat difficult to understand. What is Paul saying? Why is he saying this? But the first readers would have understood it well, because Paul sought to communicate clearly. But being separated from the first readers as we are, we find it harder to understand, so we have to work a little bit. Now, the ESV translators interpret some of the clauses uh, in the first two verses not as expressions of Paul's own thoughts, but rather as quotations of others followed by Paul's responses to their words. Now, notice that in the ESV, if you have it, uh, verse 12, you see in quotation marks those first words, all things are lawful for me. The ESV is suggesting that Paul is quoting from someone else these words, all things are lawful for me, and then that we have Paul's response that follows that, but not all things are helpful then again, a quotation, all things are lawful for me. It's a repetition of the first one. Paul's response, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Another quotation, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Paul's response, and God will destroy both one and the other. Paul could be quoting statements that the Corinthian believers were making, or he could be quoting statements commonly made by unbelievers in Corinth. However, I am not convinced that Paul is quoting anyone. I would remove the quotation marks. Uh, when Paul does quote the scripture or he's, he quotes others, uh, he, he does make it clear that he is quoting. And in Greek, when Paul wrote, they did not have quotation marks. That, that, that's why, you know, it, it's a question. Do we put quotation marks or do we not? They didn't use quotation marks. And, and, and so, being that Paul did not clearly indicate he's, he's quoting someone else, and, and just because of what the things that he says, I, I, I do interpret this differently from the ESV. I do not interpret these as quotations of others. 
Though we may struggle to understand the first verse and a half, the point of this first section becomes clear as it continues to unfold in the verses that follow. But let's start at the beginning. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. We see here that that God has designed food for the stomach, and has designed the stomach for food. And when it comes to eating different foods, the Apostle Paul says in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. He says something very similar in chapter 10, verse 23, when talking about eating food that may have been sacrificed to idols. Here in verse 13, he says, God will destroy both food and the stomach. That there is coming a time when God's purpose for both will be complete. In our future glorified state, we will not need to eat. But, here comes the point, the body is not like this. Look at the end of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Unlike the stomach, which is meant for food, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It is meant for the Lord Jesus Christ. And unlike the stomach, which will be destroyed, the body will be raised. Having sex is not like eating. All foods are lawful, but not all sex is lawful. Sex is not just a biological function like eating. In verse 13b, Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The Christian's body is meant to belong to Christ and to serve Christ, uh, who is our Lord and Master. And Paul continues in verse 13 and says, And the Lord is for the body. Because the Lord inhabits the body of the Christian by His Spirit. And the Lord has purpose to glorify the body with Him. When Christ returns... We will be glorified with Him. Our our body will be raised and will be transformed to be like Christ's glorious body. The Lord is for the body. Verse 14 says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. The Father raised the Lord Jesus Christ and will also raise us who are believers, up by his power. God raised the Lord Jesus as the first fruits, guaranteeing the resurrection of the believer's body, as Paul will elaborate upon in chapter 15, verse 20. And in that context, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 and 23, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's what is in store for our bodies as believers, that our bodies will be raised uh, at Christ's coming in order to be with the Lord forever in a glorified state. The Bible does not promise the believer redemption from the body, but redemption of the body. The goal is not to put off the body and escape the body. The goal is the redemption of the body. The body is not merely an outer shell that we will jettison at death. We have been created by God in His image with a body and with a soul. Or we could say with a body and a spirit. And it, it, it is as a whole person, body and spirit, 
uh, that we are made in God's image and that we reflect him. And the body will be raised. The body matters to God. The believer's body is forever meant for the Lord. And the Lord is forever for the body. And so the believer is to use his body only for the purposes of the Lord Jesus. Sexual immorality, being unholy, is contrary to the purposes of the Lord Jesus, and therefore contrary to the purpose of the body. You need to remind yourself of this. When you are tempted sexually, or you expect to be tempted sexually, you need to remind yourself that your body is forever meant for the Lord Jesus. And that the Lord Jesus is forever for your body. Food and stomach fit together. And likewise, your body and the Lord Jesus fit together. Unlike your body and sexual immorality, which do not fit together. There's also a second reason in our text to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in your body. The second reason is that your body is a member of Christ and not to be made a member of a prostitute. Your body is a member of Christ and not to be made a member of a prostitute. Look with me at verse 15. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The apostle is saying, you should know this. But when you commit sexual immorality, you behave like you do not know it. That's the significance of that question. Do you not know this? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is not just doctrine that we affirm and move on from. No, this is doctrine that is meant to affect the way that we live our life. He's saying, if you understand this, then you're not going to behave in sexual immorality. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The believer's whole being has been united to Christ. You were united to Christ when you first believed in Christ. At that point, your whole being was united to Christ. Your body was united to Christ, and your soul was united to Christ. By virtue of this union with Christ, believers' bodies are the body of Christ. So Paul says here in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now note the word take. Shall I then take the members of Christ? It could also be translated as it is in the New American Standard, take away. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. In other words, shall I take part of the body of Christ and make it part of the body of a prostitute? This is what you do if you as a Christian have sex with a prostitute. You take part of the body of Christ and you make it part of the body of a prostitute. Now, why does Paul say this? He explains, look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which states, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That, that comes right after God institutes marriage, as he brings Adam and Eve together in the first marriage. Paul says, He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. Now, Paul would not say this of someone who is raped. He says this of someone who willingly joins himself to a prostitute. 
Note the word joined here in verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute? That word joined in the original language, Greek, literally means to glue, join, or attach substances together. According Genesis 2.24, in this verse, Paul is going back to creation and God's design of sex. God designed sex for gluing a husband and wife together as one flesh. For gluing them together in a bond of which Christ said, let not man separate, in Matthew 19.6. Now, this does not deny that it is the marriage covenant that binds a man and wife together as husband and wife. When they walk out of that ceremony, before having sex together, they are married. Right? By the covenant that was made, they have been joined together as husband and wife. But God designed sex as an expression of the one flesh union between husband and wife, and something that glues the hearts of a husband and wife together. Because of the way that God designed sex, when a person willingly joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. Though it is temporary, it is real and significant. Their intercourse is not just a biological function. There is a profound union that occurs. And Paul asks, Shall I take the body of Christ and join it together with a prostitute like this, making it part of the body of the prostitute? Paul goes on in verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Speaking of the profound spiritual union between the believer and Christ. And we violate that spiritual union with Christ when we unite our body with that of a prostitute. Christ is altogether holy. Christ is altogether righteous. And we do violence to Christ when we take our body, which he counts as his own, and join it in an unholy union with a prostitute, doing something with his body, which is evil. The thought of it should make us sick to our stomachs. You and I need to understand that it is not only sex with a prostitute, though, that does this. It is any willful sexual relations outside marriage that does this. The second section says you are to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in your body because your body is a member of Christ and not to be made a member of a prostitute. Our text also gives us a third reason. And the third reason is this. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and was bought with a price. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and was bought with a price. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. In other words, do not be like King David. 2 Samuel 11 says that King David, from his rooftop, first saw Bathsheba, then inquired about her, then sent for her, and then took her and lay with her. We're not to be like King David. Rather, we are to be like Joseph, that we talked about earlier on, who in Potiphar's wife came with that temptation. Joseph fled, leaving his garment in her hand, not only leaving the room, leaving the house we are instructed to flee from sexual immorality. Not, not to play around with the temptation, but to flee sexual immorality. Now, fleeing involves seven things. I want to give you a list of seven things that fleeing involves. First of all, fleeing involves self-denial. Denying your ungodly urges 
and desires. If you cannot deny yourself, you're not a Christian. Jesus said that if anyone would come after him, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Fleeing requires self-denial. Our world does not know much about self-denial. Our world will generally do what feels good. Our world generally will put self at the center and self first. Fleeing involves self-denial. Second of all, fleeing involves self-control. It involves self-control. In Acts 24, Paul spoke evangelistically with Governor Felix. In Acts 24, verses 24 and 25, uh, we, we read that Paul spoke, quote, about faith in Christ and reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now, if you were talking with an unbeliever who works with you or who lives on your street, uh, and, and you were seeking to share the gospel with them, um, how would you speak with them about God's law and their how they have broken God's law and their need for salvation? Well, Paul spoke about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Self-control is vital. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left with out walls. Fleeing involves self-control. Thirdly, fleeing involves obedience to Christ. We flee from sexual immorality in obedience to Christ. We flee sexual immorality as we seek to follow Christ as our Lord, as our Master. It's not just avoiding something, but it's obeying our Lord and Master. Fourthly, fleeing involves ridding your life of and avoiding sources of temptation. Fleeing involves ridding your life of and avoiding sources of temptation. Jesus spoke in Matthew 5 in quite strong terms in verses 29 and 30 when he said, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And the context is Jesus speaking against adultery, not just outwardly, but also in our heart. If your right eye or your right hand, your, your, your right eye is in that day would be seen as your, your more important eye. Your right hand would be seen as your more important hand. The eye is very important. The hand is very important. In that day you would have to have sight and you'd be able to use your hands if you were going to be able to make a living. Jesus is saying, if, if, if something is a source of temptation for you, even if it's quite valuable. Cut it off. Get it out of your life. Don't play around with temptation. Flee temptation. In the Lord's Prayer, the model that Jesus gives to his disciples for the sorts of things that we are to pray about, the last petition in Matthew 6.13 is, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We ought to be praying regularly that, that, that God would keep us from temptation. We, we know that, that we are weak. Jesus said in John 15, Apart from me you can do nothing. And so we're not to play around with temptation. Proverbs says that's foolishness. If you don't flee from temptation, but you play around with it, you get close to it, you stay around it, Proverbs says that is foolishness. To flee, we have to rid our life of and avoid sources of temptation. 
Fifthly, fleeing involves refusing to feed the flesh. Refusing to feed the flesh. We read in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you're watching movies that include sexual immorality on the screen, you are feeding your flesh. You're setting your mind on sin. And what's going to happen if you feed the flesh? You're going to have more temptation. You're going to have stronger temptation. Refuse to feed the flesh. Refuse to do anything that's going to fill your mind with things that are going to be, be a source of temptation. Don't feed the flesh. Number six, what does fleeing involve? Sixthly, it involves purity of heart. Purity of heart. All sexual sin starts in the heart just as any other sin starts in the heart. When Jesus brings up the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, he goes to the level of the heart with lust. To flee from sexual temptation, we must fight the fight for purity of heart. That our minds would be free of lust. That our our minds would be free from things that are unholy and unrighteous. We're not to entertain in our heart the idea of committing sexual immorality. No, we are to have a heart after God's own heart. Christ had a holy heart, a righteous heart. And we too are to have a righteous and a holy heart. That's where the battle is fought. As our heart is mission control. So fleeing involves purity of hearts. And seventh, fleeing involves finding God to be all-satisfying. Fleeing involves finding God to be all-satisfying. The temptation says, this will satisfy, or this will be pleasurable. This will be good for you. And to fight sexual temptation, we must fight it with a greater desire. The desire for God himself. We fight sexual temptation, we flee from it by finding God to be all satisfying. Psalm 90 verse 14 says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Do you believe that God's steadfast love can satisfy your soul? God's steadfast love is satisfying. We are to pray like to satisfy us, O Lord, with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven but you? You are my God. You alone can satisfy my soul. You are my all and all. Oh, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Do you desire God like that? Do you desire God more than anything of this earth? That is how we are to grow. We are to grow as we grow in Christ. We are to be growing uh, in desiring God above all the things of the earth. So that we can say, there is nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you know God in that way? Do you know him as the strength of your heart? Do you know him as your portion forever? Your reward, your inheritance. 
Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We need to be finding God to be all satisfying. Don't learn the hard way. Sexual sin has tell, tells you the lie. This will satisfy. But it's a lie. You, you may know that from experience. You believe the lie. You follow the temptation. But as believers, what do we end up with? Do we end up with lasting satisfaction? No, we end up with guilt. We end up with remorse. We end up with regret. Sin will never satisfy. You have to fight against sexual sin by finding God to be all satisfying. We need to find our contentment in God. And when you, you're, you're, you are content with God, temptations lose their power. What can they offer you that's better than what, what you're finding in God? There's nothing. Find God to be all satisfying. Coming back to our text, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual Immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Because sexual intimacy is the deepest uniting of two persons, its misuse corrupts on the deepest human level and uniquely defiles the body. That's what Paul is saying here. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Think about the significance of that, brother, sister, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. What, what is a temple? A, a temple is a holy dwelling place for God. Though, though God is omnipresent, though, though He fills the universe that He has made, the Holy Spirit is present in a special way in the body of the believer, comparable to how God was present in a special way in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Brothers and sisters, let that sink into your heart. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made your body His holy temple. Your body belongs to Him, and He has set it aside for His worship. The temple is a place where God dwells and where God's people gather to worship Him. At a temple, they enter into God's presence with praise and thanksgiving. They enter into God's presence with worship. And God has made, brothers and sisters, your body a worship center. A temple where God's Spirit dwells. That is part of the significance of your body as a believer. To understand your body correctly, you must understand this truth, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on further. He says in verse 19b, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We have to ask ourselves, what was the price with which we have been bought? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, tell us what that price was. 1 Peter 1, 18. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
That was the price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ is the price that was paid for us. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus. By shedding his blood, Christ paid the penalty for your sins and mine. By shedding his blood, Christ purchased us out of slavery to sin, to belong to him and to serve him. And so understand that your soul and body were purchased with precious blood. It's not just your soul that was purchased. Your soul and body equally were purchased by the blood of Jesus. And your soul and body equally, therefore, belong to the Lord Jesus. Consequently, your body is not your own to do with as you please. It is Christ's rightful possession. And now is to be used exclusively in his service for his holy purposes. Paul continues in the second half of verse 20. So glorify God in your body. Your body was bought by the Son of God, is now indwelt by the Spirit of God as His temple, so glorify God in your body. Since the believer's body belongs to God, there is only one purpose that should mark your will when it comes to your body, and that is to glorify God with your body. Which means to honor Him with your body. A synonym for glorify is honor. It means to honor him with your body by using it exclusively in ways that reflect him and please him. Now, as, as believers, we will be glorified with Christ. That means that we will be fully conformed to Christ in soul and body, which means that we will reflect Christ to glorify God with our body is to honor Him with our body by using it exclusively in ways that reflect Him and please Him. Well, we have seen three reasons this morning to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in our body. Each reason has included one or more truths about the body of the believer. We have seen that your body, as a believer, is meant for the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus for your body. We have seen that your body will be raised by God's power. We have seen that your body is Christ's body. In other words, your body has been united to Christ so that he counts it as his own. We have seen that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen that your body was bought with a price. So let me ask you, what have you been doing with your body? What have you done with your body in this past week? What are you planning in your heart to do with your body this week? Have you been engaging in sexual sin? If you have been engaging in sexual sin, you need to repent. Repent of your sexual sin and turn to Christ. In conversion, we repent of sin and turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then throughout the Christian life, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we repent of sin and we look to Christ. We look to Christ for forgiveness and we look to Christ for the power to put off sin and to put on righteousness. We look to Christ for the grace to now live in obedience to him, having turned from our sin. Our text does teach that to engage in sexual sin as a believer is to take part of the body of Christ and to unite it in a sinful union. That to engage in sexual sin as a believer is to take the temple of the Holy Spirit and to use it in a way that profanes it. It is to take what belongs to Christ and to use it in the service of sin. And if you have been doing so, brother or sister, may you be convicted by the Holy Spirit this morning through the word of God, that you might confess your sin to your Heavenly Father, that you might have godly sorrow 
over your sin because of the offense, offense that it is to God. That you might hate your sin and that you might turn from your sin to Jesus to empower you to put off your sin, to put it to death, and to put on the things of Christ. I want us to turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the psalm of confession and repentance of King David. After the Lord spoke through the prophet Nathan to convict David of his sin of adultery as well as murder, Psalm 51, if you've been convicted this morning and you need to make confession to God, let Psalm 51 guide you in confessing your sin to Him. The inscription says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, he's calling his sin what it is. He calls his sin transgression. That is, a transgression of God's law. Sin is defined by the law of God, and therefore by the character of God. Sin is a transgression of God's holy law. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. The word iniquity has the idea of twistedness. It speaks of the nature of sin, that that, that sin is something that is morally twisted. Again, it's calling sin what it is. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He calls it his own sin. He takes responsibility for it before God. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Though our our sin does involve another person and may be against another person, ultimately all of our sin is against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, I am a sinner by nature. I have a sinful nature. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. That's, That's where sexual sin starts. It starts in the inward being. Believing a lie in the inward being. But the psalm says you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. That's the wonder of the gospel. That when we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, trusting in His death upon the cross as the payment for our sin, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God blots out all of our iniquities. He pardons us for all of our sin. He says, I will remember your sin no more. I will remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. He blots out our iniquities. He he removes the guilt. For Jesus took our guilt upon himself upon the cross. We believe upon Christ. We can know that he bore our sin. And because he bore our sin, now through faith I am forgiven by God of all of my sins. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It's not just, you know, enable me outwardly to walk now in a right way, but but it's transformed my heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
David as the king prays, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit had been taken away from King Saul. The Spirit had been given to Saul to empower him uh, to serve as king. David is, is, is concerned that God is going to take away his, his kingship. Now, as believers, we can't make these words our own in a sense of, you know, don't take away your spirit from me who indwells me, because the spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance. One who is in the hand of Christ, in the hand of the Father, cannot be snatched out of their hands. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit can be quenched. The Holy Spirit can stop empowering you in the Christian life. Cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We see joy mentioned multiple times. God's will, after we repent of our sin, and we, we look to our Heavenly Father for forgiveness, we look to Christ for the grace to to change, God's will is not that we're going to continue to go around sulking and, and, and feeling miserable over our sin. No, the, the gospel is not, not a, a, a gospel of penance where you, you have to somehow suffer for your sin, you somehow have to make up for your sin. No, it's the gospel of grace. We saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 earlier that after it said that the sexually immoral and other categories of sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God, it says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now we are to rejoice in our salvation we are to rejoice in the forgiveness that our Heavenly Father gives to us. Repentance leads to a restoration of fellowship with, with God. And we can walk forward rejoicing in our great Savior. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So it's, I've, I've sinned in a grievous way against you. Thank you for forgiving me. Now enable me to minister to others who may have the same struggle. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That broken heart, that contrite heart, is part of repentance. In repentance, our heart, our heart should break over our sin. It should break over the offense that our sin has been to God. The sacrifices of God, the worship of God, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Built up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We don't add to the sacrifice of Christ. We saw it in Hebrews 9. Christ was offered once for all for our sin. But now Romans 12 calls upon us to offer our body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. So we confess our sin, and then we consecrate our body to the Lord as a living sacrifice to be used for His glory, for His purposes. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. Our sins are many. But God's grace is greater than our sins. This is the gospel. In Christ we have forgiveness of sin. In Christ we have a right standing with God that's not based on what we have done or what we've not done. And in Christ we have power to change. 
because Christ's redemption frees us from the power of sin. Before you were saved, when you sinned, you were just acting according to your sinful nature. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. But God has now made you alive in Christ Jesus. He has set you free from the power of sin so that now you can flee from sin. So now you can flee from sexual immorality. And now you can truly walk in obedience to God using your body to glorify God in every respect. Let me ask you, have you been playing with the temptation to engage in sexual sin? If so, you've probably been hiding it from the people around you. You don't want them to know that you're playing around in your mind with this idea. If you've been playing around in your mind with the temptation to engage in sexual sin, flee from that temptation in order to glorify God with your body. Take this passage seriously. If after listening to all that we have heard in God's word, if you do not flee from that temptation, then you are utterly foolish. Utterly foolish. We've been given every reason here to flee from temptation. So don't flirt with temptation. If you expect to face sexual temptation in the future, prepare for it by regularly renewing your mind with the truths that we have studied in our passage in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul has asked repeatedly, do you not know? All the truths that we have seen in 1 Corinthians 6, in the verses that we looked at today, are truths to meditate upon, truths to memorize, truths to internalize, truths to form your mindset. Regularly renew your mind with the truths in this passage resolving to preach these truths to your soul when tempted. You have to make the plan now. If you don't make a plan now for resisting temptation, then you can easily be blindsided when the temptation comes. No, you have to make a plan now. When the temptation comes, it's much harder to think clearly because you're facing lies and you start to believe lies. So plan now. Make a plan now. Resolve now that when you are tempted, you will preach these truths to your soul that we have just studied. So maybe pick out one that you find the most powerful for you. The most powerful reason not to follow that temptation, but rather to glorify God with your body. Make a plan that that is the first one that you will preach to your soul when you face temptation. Paul is asked, do you not know? We know now. So let us remain mindful of these things. And let, we, let us be affected day by day to the depths of our soul with these truths. If tomorrow, brothers or sisters, when you wake up and you start living the day, if you're not mindful that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, if you're not mindful that your body was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus, if you're not mindful that your body has been joined to the Lord Jesus, then you're not viewing your body rightly. We have to learn to think biblically. We have to learn to think God's thoughts after Him. We have to have the mind of Christ formed in us. The scriptures are the revelation of the mind of Christ. So let our minds, our thinking, our mindset, and therefore our affections and our will all be affected today by these wonderful truths. These truths that are true of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you, know, you, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You, you are under God's just condemnation. And what you need is to be saved. You need to be born again, born of the Spirit. 
You may be saved by the, the crucified and risen Savior. I urge you to turn to Jesus Christ today in repentance and faith, trusting in Him as your Savior, submitting to Him as your Lord, to follow Him the rest of your days. Salvation is not by works. It's by grace, the grace of God, received through faith in Christ. And salvation is to the glory of God alone. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have seen a lot this morning in your word. Things that are so contrary to the way that our world thinks, so contrary to the values of our world, truths that our world finds offensive, that when we speak, they say we are expressing hatred. But Lord, this is the truth. Lord, we thank you for the believer's new position in Christ. We thank you for union with him. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that redeemed us. We thank you for making us your holy temples, that your spirit dwells within us. Oh, Lord, enable us now to live accordingly in our daily lives unto your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.